The Law Report with Tyron Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, as you know, once a month here on The Law Report, we run a legal clinic trying to answer a range of questions on a number of different topics. And tonight, it's again time to open the lines for you to ask that legal question that doesn't quite fit into the other topics we discuss here on The Law Report. And before we begin, a reminder that there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. You can post a message on Facebook if you'd like any of those, but please also remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. If you don't have access to Facebook, you can mail me on law at safm.co.za and I'll send you a copy of the list and you, you can choose what you'd like. Well, I'm joined once again this evening by attorney Nicolene Skuman Lowe, a director of Skuman Law Inc., attorneys, conveyances and notaries, public practicing here in Cape Town. Nicolene, hello, welcome back to the show. It's been a while because it was a bit of a delay from you coming back now. You've been having yeah. a fabulous time away, a little bit of, you've been actually working though. Yeah, time away, a little bit of work and a little bit of pleasure, but it's always need a break. great to be here. need a Thank break you. every now and again. <laughs> if you have any questions, you can call us now on 0892 1020. 2010. And before we go to your calls, which I see are already coming in, uh, we've just got a few emails here. This is from Lucky, who says, What are my legal rights if a writer uses my name, family name, and explicit information in a book, which is having some serious implications without my consent? The main concern here is the use of the name and family name in the book without the person's concern. The book is currently on sale to the public. Can one sue the author or the publishing company after applying for the restraining order with the High Court? irrespective of the contents. Can one also complain with the public protector for the violation of the rights of an individual, for example, the rights to privacy, or the use of someone's real name for your own benefit from the sales proceeds? Does the ombudsman come into the rescue of the rights of individuals here? Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the book is or what it's about, um, but yes, what, are the, what does Lucky have? Has he got any rights in this regard? Well, you know, this is a, a classic intellectual property law matter, uh, which really means that it's um, a question of copyright and, and those kind of infringements. Of, of course, I'm not a intellectual property attorney. That's a very specialist field in, in law. And um, there are a handful of firms around the country that do specialize in it. But, you know, from my basic knowledge back from my studies in my LLB, this definitely has... Um, uh, has affected the rights in terms of the intellectual property laws and that there will be recourse in terms of that. Um, you know, this is also, besides the, the intellectual property rights and royalties and all these other things that come from that that may be, um, that may make up a damages claim, so to speak, or a claim, um, there's also the, the aspect of, of consent that wasn't obtained. And, um, you know, potential infringements in privacy and we don't know the contents of mm. what has been published, maybe even defamation of character. So there, there may be quite a few arms to this, but I think a good point of, of departure would be to see a, a person who specializes in intellectual property and they are often very versed in in the aspects that sort of uh, are associated with these kinds of infringements. It wouldn't pay Lucky to try and do this himself if you need no. somebody who knows what they're doing. This is quite complicated because obviously if, if this book is on the bookshelves out there, it means it has probably gone through quite a reputable publishing house, mm. which has quite bluntly put uh, a few big guns 
behind them in terms of a law firm. So if you take them on as a private individual, um, you know, you'll quickly get sucked into all the legal jargon and, and all the legal terms and all of these things that may become very overwhelming for an individual. So it's very much worth his while, particularly if we're talking from the sounds of it, we mm. may be talking about a substantial amount of, in a claim, not just the interdict to stop them from distributing it further, but also the, the ancillary damages claim, which may be made up from p potential royalties or defamation and all these other things that we were talking so about. So get yourself a good intellectual property as a training. Yes. Okay. Right. Then Oscar sent us an email, but also sent an attachment and says, um, I had this agreement as attached, which I have here, and mm -hmm. says, basically what happened was that they, uh, it was a bit confusing. There was, a, I'm not oh. quite sure. They actually had a truck and they loaned or they leased the truck to, to another company. You see, what, what confused me when, when I read this email was really that the agreement or the one-page document that was attached purporting to be an agreement mm. states that it's a joint venture agreement. It yes. doesn't state that it's a lease agreement or anything like that. It just says that this person brings the truck and these are the associated rights and obligations from the other party. This is how we're going to come together to make mm. this a profitable business using this truck. So... Um, there's just in the email it says that there's been some um, uh, breach of this agreement by the other party, presumably that they haven't paid for the fuel and the expenses. But besides that, I mean, this Oscar apparently was the owner of the trailer. Yes. And there, this other company has now changed the ownership of the trailer into their name, which exactly. I mean, I'm sure you can't do that. No, I mean, um, anyone who's, who's recently tried to um, transfer even a motor vehicle, a car, or a trailer or a caravan or anything like that from the owner as it currently stands on, on the documentation to a new owner will know that it's quite a cumbersome it process. Is. It is. And if if the original owner or the authentic, the, the real owner isn't present at the transfer, then this is very serious fraud that has well, taken That's what he said. Does constitute fraud? So, A, the illegal transfer, of course, can be challenged in terms of the fact that it's fraudulent, and that can be done through the South African Police Services. Um, as for all the damages claims that may arise or actually getting the, the trailer and the vehicle back, that will have to fall through a civil process, which means you need to get yourself an attorney. The only comment I'll make on this agreement that it's really, I suspect that it wasn't professionally done, no. and that it's... Um, really very very poorly put together it's very confusing so really for us to dig into and say this is what you can do and what you cannot do is really difficult for us a we don't really have all the background and b this agreement is really very ambiguous so it it, it talks about a trailer and a truck and, and a vehicle and some costs that will be paid and security that will be given and there's an allegation of breach but we don't know to what degree or what the person wants there's even no out clause or termination clause mm. in this one-page agreement so i would just plainly advise this listener to get yourself an attorney who can um, launch Unravel the necessary well. um, actions to a get the vehicle and the trailer back and to cancel this agreement end of story Right, okay, we have one more email to go. So if you'd like to call in with your questions, 0892 10 2010. Right, this is from Malcolm. 
This also sounds quite horrendous. Malcolm says, I have the following question. I booked a ticket for overseas with a certain airline for 25th of May. Two weeks later, the travel agent told me that due to unforeseen circumstances, the time of departure of my flight would be changed. The airline offered me a full refund and a choice to change my date to a week later for free if this was inconvenient. I told my travel agent that I needed time to think about it. She advised me that the best option was to cancel, get a full refund and book later. Last week, I decided that I would cancel my ticket, obtain a full refund as stated, and book later when the dates would go back to normal. I subsequently told my family overseas and my new employer that I would not be coming in June. Last week, before I could email the travel agent, I received another email advising me that the flight times had gone back to normal, and I would either have to fly on my original ticket as booked, or pay a penalty to change to another date to cancel or cancel, but not obtain a full refund. My question is, am I legally obliged to pay a penalty to change the date in the above circumstances? And then he emailed again and said further to my email, just to clarify, I was told by the travel agent that the dates would only go back to normal in July. Therefore, I informed my new employer overseas that I would be available in August and told my brother overseas that I would see him in August and he's now left on holiday. If I leave now, I won't have anywhere to stay or to work. I changed my plans due to what the travel agent told me. Please advise whether I must pay a penalty to change the date. You know, it's always difficult with airlines because mm. some of them are based here, some are not. But the Consumer Protection Act does govern any transaction that takes place in the country. So by by measuring it to that, if you've paid in South African rands in South Africa for a plane ticket, regardless of where it's going, then the Consumer Protection Act applies. Now, the act is very clear on a number of things. The most relevant in this case being the issue of double booking or of changing in flight plans and ticketing and so on. And that also applies to, of course, things like theater and, and any other ticket that you mm. would buy. So firstly, there is protection in terms of double booking or changing and there are certain regulations that need to be adhered to. So this could be something that could be reported to the Consumer Commission. However, that takes months, weeks, it won't be resolved before August. Let's just put it that way. So that is an option if this doesn't get resolved. But in most instances, paying the penalty, and, and of course these guys rely on it, that it's cheaper and more effective for you mm. to just pay the penalty and let's, you know, let's just resolve it quickly and easily. But they were the ones that kept messing him around with the dates. Exactly, and, and it, it does happen, particularly if the weather or some condition in the destination country is of, of an unstable mm. nature, whether it's permanent or, or um, intermittently. So in, in a nutshell, the listener must decide how much is the penalty, and usually it's not a substantial amount. It's not cheap normally either. No, it's not cheap either. But you, you need to weigh that up against a um, complaint at the Consumer Commission, for example, that may take weeks and months to resolve, which may result in you completely um, postponing your trip until, you know, later the year. What if he paid the penalty but told them that he was paying this under sort of duress effectively and he would be reporting it to the Consumer Commission? Of course and he can do that. So you, if you pay it up front, it's not going to negate no, your claim. But I think then, then it needs to be coupled with some communication to them to say to them, I have paid this not in agreement of your terms, but just to get this matter resolved and I will follow the channels following yes. this. Furthermore, your travel agent should, you know, as 
if nothing else, as good business practice, assist you in resolving this. Hmm. They usually have contacts in within the airlines on a much higher level than the new, n- normal consumer on the street. So that's a second avenue. If they refuse to assist, then, of course, their supervisor. Mm. So what I'm trying to get at is really to say, speak to the travel agent or the immediate superior or the owner of the travel agency, if it needs be, to try and resolve it amicably. Or in the alternative, try and speak to the airlines. They often have um, call center agents and these guys who are also able to assist. And... um, Sometimes if you are able to go a level higher up, you're able to negotiate these kind of terms. That, to me, is a much more practical approach than to say, you know, issue a letter of demand or report it to the Consumer Commission because all these things are going to take time. And it's not going to resolve the immediate crisis that the listener is facing. And then, and this is just me because I'm neurotic, but if you talk to anybody about anything, I would always follow it up with an email saying, yes. reg- regarding our previous yes. conversation, this is what we, deci- what we discussed. Yes, and so that course. you've got a copy, you email Hold it to the paper them. Trail. Yeah, have the paper trail is the big thing. Because remember, this is just step one. Mm. You're going to try and resolve it either through your travel agency and or the airline concerned directly. And if in followed up, build that paper trail. Because if that fails, you'll end up paying the penalty because you want to now travel mm. at a predetermined time which suits you and which... Of course, I hear employment is also at stake, which, you know, accommodates all these factors. And if that doesn't help or doesn't resolve the matter, then you want the recourse to the Consumer Commission. Hmm. And then you'll need as much evidence as you can. As all those bits of paper. Yes. Love bits of paper. Right. We've got some calls on the line. Teresa in Cape Town. Good evening. Teresa. Hello, Teresa. Are you with us? Yes, uh, there am. you are. Hello. Found you. Hello. How can Hello, we help sorry. you? Hi. We've, you phoned in last week and I said we're going to call you back tonight when Nicolene was here because Thanks. Teresa Thanks. wants Very to talk nice. about your favorite can topic. I, can I continue? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you carry on. You want to talk about Nicolene's favorite topic. That's correct. Thank you so much, Nicolene. Hi. Um, well, both my parents, I'm sitting with this dilemma, both my parents passed um, respectively 2001 and 2008. Okay. In 2010... The eldest sibling um, registered our parents' will as he was placed in the position as executor as for the last will and testament. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we were, you know, the, the other three siblings were unaware of um, his movement concerning this, um, this last will and testament because there was no communication from his side and he refused to communicate with, with any of us. Mm-hmm. They only learned that, um, you know, he was busy with, his, um, with an attorney in 2010. Now, last week, I then received, and this is after um, much, you know, correspondence to the masters from the masters, um, you know, with me going to the master's office, um, getting in touch with the attorney um, via telephone, questioning the attorney. We weren't happy with, you know, the attorney. Mm -hmm. I also then lodged a complaint with um, the Law Society. So there was a lot of correspondence. Um, mm-hmm. However, last week, I received a um, e- um, letter from the attorney confirming that this particular executor, the eldest brother, mm-hmm. has been removed as, of course, um, you know, he didn't comply to what the master um, requested of him. Now, in this letter... Um, since the, my, my father passed away, that was in 2008, the youngest 
um, been, uh, you know, moved in um, whilst my father was alive. She moved in. And then, of course, after his death, um, you know, she paid a few months of the rate and the rent. Um, and then she stopped because she paid it to the executor. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that it was supposed to have gone into a trust. Um, we don't, we're not aware of what happened to that money. Um, then in this letter that I received last week from the attorney, the attorney states that the younger siblings were not liable for the rate payable as this was payable by the estate mm-hmm. after the death of your late father estate. But um, is that correct? Was it, I mean, is it supposed to come out of the portion that we are supposed to get, that, you know, the other siblings are supposed to get, uh, seeing that she occupied property? Mm-hmm. So she, is, is, that, is it correct that she, is, she wasn't liable for paying the rent and the rent? Well, you know, it depends what the will says. If the will has established, by example, a trust and um, the property is then registered in the trust's name and one or more of the siblings can stay there, it may be the responsibility of the trust or the estate late to pay for the rates and utilities and all the expenses. Sorry, Nikoli. Now... um, you know, at the time when I uh, spoke to the masters, mm-hmm. there was no trust. There was okay. no trust. You mentioned um, the trust. That's that's why I. No, she said it she up. thought the money should have gone into trust into because the sibling trust. was paying it to the executor, which was the older brother. Mm-hmm. Now the exactly. money seems to have disappeared. Well, you exactly. know what? What you'll have to do is you'll have to get your own attorney to mm-hmm. get a copy of the file at the master's office, which will mm-hmm. include the will as well as the liquidation and distribution account. I've, I've, got, I've got the last will and testament. And, I also, and have, L&D. I also have the L&D um, list with mm. me. Yes. And that was the, that was the first L&D. Um, yes. The master had since, you know, spoken or, or, or sent the um, executor and asked him to, uh, let me just see, to ask, uh, yeah, the, the master asked him to um, forward a new list, mm. a new L&D list, because he wasn't happy with, with what was, you know, on that list. No rent were included. And as the master said to me, if the rent is to be collected, mm. there also won't be a shortfall on the L&D. Of and course. because now the um, the A's has to pay the shortfall, the shortfall. You know, this, this is a very sad situation, but it's unfortunately... Something that doesn't, that happens more often than I think any one of us would want to see it happen. And um, I'm actually dealing with a similar kind of estate at the moment where one of the siblings has done something. Well, I'm not saying this sibling has done it. Allegedly, he's done the same thing as as the estate that I'm dealing with that has been proven. Um, there's been some misappropriation of funds yeah. by the executor. Um yeah. During the deceased's lifetime, he was also the curator for the deceased who was quite elderly and frail. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, the fraud and the um, misappropriation started in the life of of this person. And it just simply continued shamelessly um, as he was administering the estate. So when this kind of thing happens, what you need to do is you need to... One step that you've already achieved is 
um, relinquishing or for lack of a better word, firing the the existing executor and then appointing a new person. That new person, what I do when I take these appointments is I actually get a forensic accountant on, bo- on board and we go through each banking account. We go through each bank statement and, and they do a full forensic financial audit and they see where the money has gone essentially. And once you can determine the amount that is missing and who was in control of it, which would have been the executor, then you can start preparing your case to claim the ex- from the executor. This is quite an old estate. So I would yeah. really recommend that you make haste and appoint yourself someone that will deal with it on this basis. All that right. you can also see where the money is gone. Thing, one yes. last thing. An affidavit mm-hmm. was also signed by the then executor. Yes. Um, in 2013, 14th of March 2013, yes. stating that the heirs have received the inheritance due to them and all the creditors have been paid. Oh, and, my I mean, word. We are still sitting with this you know, matter that hasn't been um, well, backed up. Yet. That's an additional issue then. That's perjury. That's, that's, and it can even be fraud. It's, it's pretty serious. So I think make haste, appoint a forensic accountant or even an auditor, but someone that specializes in, as the accountants call it, looking for the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that you know where it's gone, who was in control of it, what type of amount are we talking about that is exactly to the cent that is missing. And then if you go this route, you need to pull out all the stops, as they say. Every document that was misrepresented, every fraud, every every affidavit that purported some set of truth that turns out yeah. to be nothing more than a blatant lie, all of that will have to be brought in. And this means that you'll pursue the eldest sibling in, criminal charges. in his personal capacity and there will be a criminal element to it. So in all likelihood, you know, this will have jail time as a repercussion, not just the case of repaying the money. Yeah, because I this because is serious. I let you know via text message, and I said him I'm aware of the affidavit that was signed, and is he aware? And I'm sure I said you are aware of, you know, the consequences. And he just said, "Don't speak to me. Don't don't call me again." You know, so yes, there is no correspondence, okay. there is no communication. He refuses to do that because. Um, you know, we, we suspect that um, there is definitely underhandedness um, happening there. Will, will this attorney be willing to um, assist you in any way, the executor's old attorney? Or no, no, not no, really. No, she oh, she's bound by attorney-client privilege in any way. Yeah, no, I, I'm not happy with, with the attorney. So if we, if I'm not happy with the attorney, but, you know, the other two siblings have now sort of come to the party where they are willing now to work with the first of initial executor and his attorney, what do I do? Because I'm basically on my own. Well, you're also an heir. You're also someone who has an interest in the estate. You don't, it would be easier if all three of you would stand together, but it's not a deal breaker if you don't. You and, still and have they an can't interest. do anything without my signature? No. They can't, all right. No. Micheline, thank you so much. Good luck. Uh, Good luck, but do, do make haste, much. hey? Thank you. Okay. As soon as possible. Thanks, Teresa. Nicolina is saying you must do something as soon as possible. Yes. No, I will definitely have to. Thank you very much, Karen. All the pleasure. Pleasure, Teresa. Good night. Bye-bye.
Gosh, that's so sad when it comes to that. It's horrible, know. hey? I'm starting to think it wasn't such a bad thing. I was an only child. Makabela in Laudium, good evening. Yes, uh, I have two questions. Uh, one, an owner in a complex uh, claims that he pumped the case. Uh, the case actually pumps his car when he was exiting the complex. So I just want to know who's responsible for, for those damages. Well, the gate closed on his car? Yeah, he claims it's got stuck. Then, 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 then it hit his car while he was exiting. Well, it, it depends whose gate it is. It's if a it's complex a, gate. If it's, a, if it's the main complex gate, then it's probably body corporate. And then it will be a case of the insurance for the body corporate against this guy who feels he has a claim. Of course, we know insurance um, companies send out an assessor and then they decide whether or not the version of the gate closing is really plausible or not and whether or not they'll pay. So I would hand this over to my body corporate insurance if I was you. Okay. Okay. The second question now is that uh, in cases where an owner wants the, the proof of the quotation from the trustees, for all the work that has been done, are we obliged to give that to one owner? What type of work? Uh, say, for instance, the cutting work, uh, we had a cutting work done, then we got coats, then we, we found one guy, that, but, the, uh, but the one owner looks for other coats to say, he just wants to see if it a comparison for the coat for the guy that was given the work to. You see that the trustees of the body corporate are in charge of all the administration of the body corporate. So once a year you have an AGM, and at that AGM you've got your budget prepared for the next year, and you've got your financial statements for the year gone by, proving what expenses you've had, and and it's, it's done by a professional accountant, an auditor. So those get signed off at your AGM, and your New Year's budget gets approved. Owners individually can make recommendations regarding service providers, but you as the trustees are not obliged to use whatever um, provider such an owner recommends. It, the decision ultimately lies within the trustees and the meeting they will have. And if you have five trustees and, and four say yes and one says no, then democracy rules. So the trustees vote on who they appoint um, in terms of service providers. And yes, you can, you can ask the owner to get a quotation for you and you can consider it against three or four or five others. So in many complexes, if they have to deal with, with um, uh, comments or suggestions of this nature, they often invite all the owners to source quotations and to send it to them. And they then, as the trustees, scrutinize it. And they decide who gets the work at the end of the day. But the owners do not decide this, no. Okay, and, and in terms of the owners being a service provider, do you guys recommend that or what's the law around that? They can recommend it, and even in some complexes, some of the owners themselves render the services. But, you know, from a transparency perspective, um, I, I do think it's, it's much better to, um, to disclose in the trustee meeting that, you know, this is one of our owners that is offering to render these services. And often you'll find if an owner renders the services from a practical perspective, despite this potential conflict of interest, you know, it's really something that um, creates more trouble than, than um, saves money at the end of the day. 
um, there's a lot of emotions going going around if if the service isn't maybe up to par or something like that. So it's always a dangerous thing to do to get one of the owners to be the service provider. But you know if if the if the complex isn't financial dire straits or if they are a bit pressed for for money, then and that's the only option that they can consider. Then you know just do it responsibly. I would say. Thank you. Right, does that help you, Makabele? Yes, thank you very Great. much. All the well, best. Thanks for calling. Good night to you. If you have any questions for us, the number is 0892102010, 0892102010. And I have a special request from my producer who says, please tell the listeners there are no property law questions or labor law questions tonight. Those are special other programs. Tonight's the program for all those other questions that don't get answered in the labor law and the property law and it's all the other stuff. So if you want to call in 0892102010, but no labor or property law tonight. Right, Robert in the Eastern Cape. Good evening. Good evening, Karen, and your guest. Hi, Robert. Uh, hi. Hi. Um, I don't know whether it's in your um, ambit, but I have a friend who requires a large amount of money in South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, in South, he's a South African, and um, we both have bank accounts in England, and he, he has this money in England, mm -hmm. and he wants to transfer the money into my account in England, and I give him the equivalent in rands in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Is this, it's, it's a large amount of money, perhaps over a million rand. Okay. Is this legal or is this um, doable? Will I get into trouble? You know, from, from a, I'm always reluctant to advise people to resolve their foreign exchange needs between themselves and not through the lawful channels. Um, the Reserve Bank regulations, um, if I'm not mistaken, are currently at a 2 million threshold. So whatever you want to take out or bring in needs permission over 2 million. I may be wrong with the amount. It may be 2.5, but if memory serves me correctly, it's 2 million at this stage um, in, in one lump sum. So um, you need to follow the the channels. And you've but got... You see, uh, oh, sorry, can I just... Yeah, uh, sure. Um, he will pay £62,000 mm. into in my pound account yes. in the um, overseas. Yes. And I'll give uh, $1.2 or thereabouts in rands to him in rands. So yes. no money actually goes in or out of the country. Okay, that's the one side of it. The other side is the internal side being SARS. How are you going to explain that on your income tax return? It's not a donation. If it is a donation, then you're going to pay donations tax. If it's a loan, then you need to declare it as such, but I don't think you can declare it as a loan when there's been a set-off on a um, in an offshore account. So from a tax planning perspective, I, I wouldn't recommend that you do this because you'll have a lot of explaining to do in, with SARS, and if you call something something that it is not, it's a recipe for... for um, Disaster, really. Yeah. For, for lack of a better phrase. So I wouldn't do it through these channels. Um, if And also you need to ask yourself, what it, what is the issue for moving the money into the country himself? Maybe well, there are things that you don't know. And I'm, I'm not saying it is like that, but maybe there are things that you don't know and you don't necessarily want to get involved with. Well, no, this is a very trusted trend, but um, uh, it would just be to... Um 
go past the uh, the bank. You know, the banks always give you a bad rate and mm. this commission, etc., etc. Oh, but the, there are these agents that um, that deal exclusively with forex. They don't deal with any other banking, and they give a much better rate than the banks do, and their commissions are much lower than the banks, and they're very legitimate. So I would rather follow a legitimate channel than to try and do it yourselves and having trouble either internally or with the reserve bank. All right. Uh, that do, you have any of, do you have any of these... Um, Agents. I can give Karen some, and she can 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 get it to you um, on email, perhaps. Sure. Okay, Robert. I'm I'm going to ask my producer to call you back shortly, and if you can just get because he's just on the phone at the moment, but he'll call you back in a few minutes, and if you could just give him your email address, and then I'll let you have those agents' numbers. Thanks very much. Okay. Well, good luck. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Good night to you. Good yeah, night. I, th- you mentioned that word SARS. You sort of think about getting into trouble with SARS, I start breaking out into a cold sweat, even though I've done nothing wrong just, you know, yet. No, but you know... Um, but you're right. I mean, I didn't even think of that. People, people, and I often see this even between parents and their children, mm. where, where the parent has the, the most noble intention to help the child out that cannot get a bond right now, and then they give them the money to buy that property. And sometimes on the basis of a loan, sometimes an, as an advance on an inheritance, but then there's no documentation. Come submission time, then SARS sees this huge influx of cash in the, the child's banking account, but a huge outflow on yours. And then they have to ask the question, where is this? What is it? Is it a loan? Is it a donation? Um and then more often than not, people then start becoming very creative to say, no, it's a loan and maybe I'll pay it back. But then it's not a loan because you'll pay it back if it is. And the worst of it is you'll <laughs> get hit with penalties and all sorts of things. So it's going to end up costing you a whole lot more than it had initially that you'd planned. Exactly. Or sometimes you can't undo it and then you pay all these these penalties with taxes and you've got explaining to do and then... Let's be frank, then forever you are on the radar. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I would not like to be on SARS radar no, like, for anything. <laughs> just rather just pay your tax and just, yeah. Just just call it what it is. Yeah. And before you actually do the transaction, go and see a tax practitioner and an attorney to put the legal documentation together. Before you actually do it, not after the fact. <laughs> yeah, much safer. And just, you know what, you'll sleep at night. Yes, totally. Yeah, that's the other thing. Right, if you have any questions, 0892-10-2010, 0892-10-2010. Ben in Yeovil, good evening. Uh, good evening, thanks for taking my call. Pleasure, how can we help you, Ben? I'd like to know if a person is in the court of law mm-hmm. and they speak about the third person, in fact, that third person just writes a letter and they don't do it in the form of an affidavit. Mm-hmm. Is that admissible? Well, generally speaking, of course, I don't know the context within which this happened, but generally speaking, the general rule is that hearsay evidence is inadmissible. So if you say... Um, auntie so-and-so said to uncle so-and-so and he told me and therefore I tell you that is for lack of a better phrase bad evidence um, it's inadmissible as as we put it formally so um, for example if you bring a letter um, as an exhibit then one needs to prove the authenticity and usually the best way in doing that is to call the author of the letter to the witness stand to say hey is this your handwriting 
did you write this, etc., etc., to prove the authenticity of the document. And if you can't call the person, then there's no way you can prove authenticity. That's the whole issue with a will, for example. The person who wrote it is dead now. So you have to make sure that it was properly done and you can prove it was the person's signature. And then you call the witnesses, if they are hopefully still alive, to say, yes, yeah. this is the signature and it is a real document. Does that answer your question? Right. Yes, yes, it does. Thanks very much. So you sorted now, Ben? Yes, yeah. Good luck, eh? Helpful, yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Good night to you. Yeah, there's all these very intricate little bits and pieces. You know, you can't just pop in and say, oh, so-and-so told me yesterday around the corner there. You know, it's not, as you said, it's totally inadmissible. Totally. And and you, you know, every day that goes by, we see so much fraud happening. And it happening, um, in fact, I I was part of a case not too long ago where um, one of the pieces of evidence uh, discovered was an email. And um, the person who apparently wrote the email we called as a witness, and he testified that he was on annual leave when that email was apparently produced, so he couldn't have sent it. So we called the um, IT experts and the guys who managed the email service and all of that. It turns out that it was a copy and paste job. So, you know, it's one document. You need to prove the authenticity, even if it's a handwritten document. Some forgers are that good that they can make it look very real. <laughs> it makes me quite nervous to do anything now. Yeah, but, you know, even with our banking, you get all these spam emails every now and again of and, uh, click here and give me $10, click. you know, <laughs> then click. I give you 100 back. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, I'm a millionaire. I don't know how many times over, but I accidentally keep deleting those emails. I, don't know, I mean, I could have been inheriting, I don't know how many millions all over the world, dollars, pounds, euros, the whole thing. None of that's true for those of you listening. Don't believe it for yeah. a minute. While we're waiting for some more calls to come through now, if you have anything to ask, please, 20 minutes left, 0892102010. Don't wait until the last minute because then we won't be able to get you on. Now, tell us about your thing that you were away doing, why, why you weren't here earlier this month. Well, um, we were in Johannesburg and we had our launch event in, um, in Cape Town on Friday in uh, Somerset West. We launched the concept which is a comprehensive triple BE solution um, in the form of a company. I've, um, I and my firm have endorsed it along with Midland Partners who is a firm of accountants and auditors based in Somerset West. But they are national and they're medium sized. Um, us, on the other hand, we're based in Cape Town, and at this point in time, we only have an office here. We specialize in all facets of commercial law. Um, so it was really a, a good synergy between Skuman Law Inc. and um, Midland Partners from both the legal and the financial perspectives, uh, focusing on the needs of entrepreneurs. And, of course, everything that every, that everyone is talking about now, and that's Triple BE and how will it affect business, uh, many people have actually seen it um, as the biggest risk business has ever faced in this country. We've um, done a lot of research and we're quite confident that as much as it can be a risk, if you make it one, it can also be one of the most valuable opportunities to not only propel your own business into a proudly South African market and being part of that in every sense of the word and not just saying that you are, um, but we also believe that it can really have a ripple effect and change this country for the better. So the solution covers all five of the scorecard elements, including ownership. It's based on an equity ownership um, model. 
and also a long-term um, empowerment model. So whoever this company called Net Value Holdings invests in, um, our market is the QSE market, in other words, between 10 and 50 million rand in turnover. Um, we pick people who are passionate and genuine about empowerment. Now, can I ask you, maybe in somebody from the other company, maybe in the next month or so, the two of you come in mm. and we can just do a whole show on this triple BEE because I think there's a lot of technicalities, I think, involved here. No, of course. Here. And for people out there with businesses, it might be quite useful for them to actually speak to both of you. Oh, definitely. Mm. And, I mean, th this is not... It's not a quick fix mm. and it's not um, something to circumvent any of the elements. It's uh, we, We've always said that there are certain elements that are absolutely non-negotiable when we created this concept and transparency and legitimacy are absolutely non-negotiable. So the whole concept is, of course, up until the intellectual property rights start and mm. all the concepts, which are quite unique that we've worked on, except for that, we're very open about how it works and how it doesn't work. And um, it's really to, to have that journey with our investee companies that we'll invest in, help them get their empowerment um, ducks in a row, help them um, empower themselves so that they one day do not need us anymore. So it's a completely holistic solution. So I think maybe it would be nice to do a whole show on that. If definitely. You, we'll put that will be We'll great. put that together in the next month or so. We'll find a free time and um, we'll definitely do that. Yes, and if any mm. of the listeners are interested, the, the website has been launched now on Friday or actually on Tuesday when we, we had our first event in Johannesburg. And it's www.netvalue.co.za. It's got a bunch of really great videos on it and it's got a nice calculator on it, um, an application to show you what your your investment could be and what your return on investment can be. If you really embrace mm. um, what empowerment is really all about and what it is to be a a real serious play in the South African economy. That sounds great. Okay, so keep an eye out for that. That'll be coming up soon. In the meantime, a few, we've got 15 minutes left, 0892 10 2010, and Paul's in the Eastern Cape. Paul, good evening. Good evening to you ladies. How are you guys doing? Very well. How are you, Paul? <laughs> Very well, thanks. Uh, I would just like to inquire with regards to road accidents. Um, a friend of mine was involved in a motor vehicle accident uh, on a Saturday evening about two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, he waited, uh, tried uh, on his cell phone for over two hours to get the police to respond. He got no response. Uh, in the meantime, a breakdown vehicle had arrived and an ambulance. Um, eventually, after about two and a half to three hours, the breakdown vehicle took his vehicle and brought him back to East London. Uh, the ambulance picked up the other fellow. Uh, but during this time, um, a taxi driver who witnessed the accident uh, came to my friend and said, look, the other guy is quite badly injured. He's sitting in his car there, and uh, it appears like he's been drinking in that. So when the police never arrived after a period of time, uh, the accident you know, scene was left, and uh, the following day, the guy went to the uh, local police station, to one of the police stations here, to report the accident. And they tried to fob him off and say, no, you must go to another police station because they handled vehicle accidents there. So he said, no, as far as I know, you can report it at any police station within a certain period of time. Mm. They then reluctantly took a statement from him, filled in a report, gave him a case number and that. And uh, the next Tuesday, 
he asked me, uh, could I please make inquiries as to whether the other people had reported the accident and what had happened to the guy that was injured. The police station then informed me that uh, documentation had been taken and filed at the traffic department, which is what they do nowadays. There's no investigation by the police unless it's a very serious injury. Otherwise, uh, people just make a report and the reports are filed away and nothing further happens. Mm. So I said, that seems very strange because, you know, in this case, it was somebody injured. He was taken by ambulance. And um, how can the documents just be filed? So they said, well, they have gone to the traffic department. If you want them, you can approach the traffic department, which I did do. And they said, no, okay, well, you can pay us 132 rand and we will give you a copy of the statement that the other guy made. Uh, but as far as anything else goes, uh, you know, uh, it, it just gets filed. The police are not prepared to do anything uh, with accidents anymore. So I said, but that is probably why so many people are dying on the roads if nothing is done when there's accidents and, and people are involved in, you know, in, in damage to the vehicles and also in injuries in it. And I've been going backwards and forwards back to the one police station and to the other one, and nobody wants to be of assistance. The one told me that the actual procedure is for the police station with a uh, uh, initial thing is filed to send the document to the nearest police station uh, where the accident occurred and that police station must then send investigators, you know, the police here, to investigate and get all the details, make measurements and all that and then all these reports must be collated eventually and sent to the prosecutors for decisions whether to prosecute or not. Mm. But as far as, uh, you know, the information that I've been given from the police station is that no. If I want the documents, I must pay 132 rand. I can get a copy of of the report. And as as far as the other people not making a, an a accident report, if it doesn't happen and they find out about it, they might be subjected to a fine. Well, I don't that sound right. No, I, I no, it doesn't sound right. But but I must also say that I don't practice or specialize in criminal matters. So. Maybe, you know, I'm not the best person to, to give you the ins and outs of how the process works. But no, that doesn't sound right at all. It most definitely doesn't work like that over here. I've never heard of having to pay for a, no. a copy of, a, of an accident report. I mean, that's ridiculous. More, moreover, if, if your friend intends to claim from the road accident fund, he must get himself an attorney who specializes in the field. And they usually collate all the police reports and the medical reports, or they at least guide you on on where to go to get the medicals done and all of that. Yeah. So, Sorry, but, but he's not injured. No, my, the my friend wasn't. It's the, the other guy. Yeah. Was injured. But now, so this the is the only for insurance purposes, yeah. then, that you yeah. would need this report. But the thing I is, Paul, Paul, you also mentioned that the other guy possibly or allegedly under was under the influence as well. I mean, yes. that could have had... Sorry, the police also said there that if he's not tested within two hours... Well, exactly. Mm. Then he, ca he cannot be charged with exactly. The, uh, that's yeah. yeah, that's actually actually quite shocking. It is shocking. Um, you know the 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 insurance usually only needs a case number of the fact that you have reported the accident, um, and once they've received that, the insurance companies, if they want copies of these reports, they tend to look for them themselves, um, or they instruct you to submit those documents. So. Um, you know, from your friend's perspective to get the car repaired, presumably, um, from an insurance perspective, you would only need the case number or the um, for the police report. But the whole the whole way that it was handled, Paul, is really yeah. not, not yeah. good. You can always right. report this. To iPad. Yeah. Yeah. Just one further thing. Uh, his vehicle is, is completely written off. And um, so he said, well, you know, the, the towing company said, 
they will, uh, you know, shop around and see who can get him, uh, give him the best offer. But he required, they need uh, the registration certificate. And he couldn't lay his hands on it just offhand, so he contacted the traffic department or the, the licensing department, mm. and they said yes to give him a document of the registration document that's going to be 600 rand. Now that, that I know you do, you do pay for. I, I'm not sure what the tariff is, but um, I, I do know that if you've lost your original registration papers, you do ha- pay for reissue. But that's expensive. Yeah. That is very expensive, but I do know there is a fee. Yeah, it's just strange because I looked at my registration paper and it only cost about 30 or 40 rand initially. Wow. Yeah, that was in the beginning. <laughs> Maybe they charge you for like the second one. You know, the first one you get at a discounted rate and the next one, if you lose it, you know, it's yeah. sort of the thing you want to put all that stuff in a plastic bag and sleep it under your pillow so you don't lose it. You know, <laughs> under your mattress. <laughs> under your mattress. Hide yeah. it under your mattress so you know where it is. Okay, yeah. well, thank you very, very much and keep up the good work with all the different um, ones that you have with the labor laws and all that sort of thing. I'm a regular listener. Great, thanks, and Paul. And I do appreciate it and I think you guys do a great job. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good night. We're just sitting here not quite knowing what's going on because we've been sitting here having load shedding all night in half light. <laughs> half the lights have been working and suddenly everything came back on again and then everything went off again and now it's come back on again. So it's been quite an exciting evening here in the studio. Right, Janet in KZN, good evening. Uh, hi there. Hello. Just a quick question again about property as you were discussing of making donations for your children for um, loans mm. on buying properties. Mm-hmm. Mine is quite different though. I want to sell my present property mm-hmm. and then build on my children's property. Would there be tax involved? In other words, I wouldn't be um, uh, owning the property that I'm going to buy on. Would that also be considered as uh, a donation? No, because a donation means a gratuitous disposition. And in other words, something that you give away. Now, if you sell your house and you use the money to buy, to build a little place for you to stay in on your uh, children's property, then you're not giving them anything um, per se. But when you pass away, then of course it's on their property and you'll have to deal with that. Um, so, in other words, would you say there must be a legal document about the amount of money I spend or whatever? Or what yeah, I think there needs where that money went because I do intend spending quite a bit, probably of a million rand. I would want but, to build a nice place, you know. Yeah, and you sh- so, bearing in mind that there are two sides to this. There's the side where your children are giving you the opportunity to build this little place, and um, that will be a benefit to you. But one day, if you're no longer there, then they can sell the property at a bit of a premium because there's an extra building on it. So I think the the key here is to sit down with your with your children and to discuss with them what you intend to do and to make the arrangements. Uh, presumably, you have more than one child to make sure yeah. that there's equitable distribution on death. Then there shouldn't be any adverse tax implications. So yeah. in other words, if you uh, say to uh, them, you know, I've built uh, this little place which I'm going to live in, and yes, you're giving me the opportunity to build it. I don't have to pay rent because it's on your property and it's rent free. So during my life, that is the benefit that you're giving me, and I'm repaying that by leaving you this property that you can then on sell or rent out as an extra income, and that's sort of your inheritance then. So you must just make sure that there's an, some form of an equitable distribution. I was mainly worried about SARS, you know. So Not during your life. I, I can't see that there will be an issue during your life. It may become a little more complicated 
if they wish to sell the property while you're still alive and you don't want okay. to go along. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Good luck, Thanks Janet. Thanks. Thank good night you. to you. Bye. Bye-bye. Right, we're staying in Quasar Natal with Marco. Marco, good evening. Good evening. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, I'm just I'm calling in on, on the subject you were discussing earlier with the BEE. Right. Um, I'm you know I'm a small business person and uh, we sort of get like a lot of uh, setbacks with jobs that that we used to do but we can't do anymore because we're not BEE approved. You know. Yes. And um, so I was wondering with this, 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 the system that you're talking about now, will anything in that line change? You know. Um, not not being uh, um, as uh, being white people and and, and not uh, a black company, not English, but yeah, will anything change with this new system? Well, you know, we we're not lawmakers, so we can't change the law. And okay. you know, I in my view, this is just my opinion. Um, I think BE is going to be with us for a very long time. I don't think there's an expiry date on it, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, so my my view is really we need to embrace it. And when how, how when you, you embrace it, you need to embrace all of it. The, the, the times where you could choose what to do and what not to do are over. These new codes make all the elements compulsory, um, particularly for businesses larger than 10 million rand turnover per year. So it's a, it's a bit more technical than that, but just let's just leave it at that to say that, you know, the time of doing a bit of it but not doing any of it really because you want to, those days are over. You need to embrace it and you need to embrace it as part of your business strategy. So the, the company that has been launched, Net Value, that, I've, that I spoke about, um, they specialize in helping white-owned or fully white-owned or partially white-owned businesses comply with BEE. So they offer a full suite of services across all the elements. So, so but, there, is, there is a possibility to, to get yes. into this. Yes, and it's true empowerment. It's not some um, fly-by-night kind of issue. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. Nothing, nothing. Well, if you want to, there, there, is a web, there is a website you can have a look at. It's netvalue.co.za. Yes. Just have a look at that initially and maybe just get some idea of mm. what Nicolene's talking about. And you can sort of see the way that this whole thing has been structured and you can yes. maybe help you just, just get a start. Yes, in the yeah. next week or two, the launch videos uh, will be available on the website for you to watch so that you can get a bit of an idea of how this whole thing is put together because it's quite technical to, to even quickly d- explain to someone over a two-minute conversation. Um, we wow. took five hours in a, in a launch event to take people through the entire concept and we didn't yeah. even get through every everything that there is to get through. Yes. But there is something out there, and it and it aims to to really help. So netvalue.coza, yeah. So we're not completely fried. <laughs> no, no. There's, there's hope we shouldn't out there. see it like that. Yeah, being a small company, it's difficult to employ somebody, you know, just in order to achieve the BEE status. Mm. You know? But I'm and very, it, I'm very against any statements of. Um, I need to employ or I need to get a partner in order to comply. For, for yeah, me, yeah. for yeah. me, it, it, you know, you, you wouldn't just marry anyone without dating first. No, the average person wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. when it comes to your business, your business, your decisions need to be business-based decisions. Yes. Yeah. 
Right. Well, unfortunately, Nicolene, that's all we've got time for. We've come yet mm. again to the end of the show. Thank, Thank you very you. much for the call. So just, just give me that, that email address. Once it's, I a, it's, it down. it's a website. It's netvalue.co.za. Yeah, net. Net. Yeah. Thank you very much. Great. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye-bye. Good night to you. Thanks. Bye bye. Well, my thanks once again this evening to Nicolene Skumanlo. She's a director of Skuman Law Inc., attorneys, conveyances, and notaries, public practicing here in Cape Town. And she's been my guest in tonight's edition of The Law Report. And we'll be running legal clinics like this one every month. And Nicolene will be back with us again in June. Nicolene, thank you so much. Thank you for having again. me. Always a pleasure. The Law Report, as you all know by now, is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And remember, there's available documents on Facebook, Law on SAFM, or email me, law at safm.co.za. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after 9 with Health Matters, so join me then. But right now, it's time for Stephen Kirker with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.